Hey, some of you saw in between the services, or you'll see them at the end, uh, that uh, I've integrated some wedding pictures into the announcements um, that are running before and after the service, and uh, all I can tell you is be careful what you post on social media, because um, some of you will be, uh, it's, it's, some of you are hard to recognize from all the way back then, I'll just tell you. So it's a, um, uh, and that would include like, I don't know, me. So if you, if you look at those, be careful. All right, so. Uh, I want to pray for a couple of things, um, a couple of big ones, and we've referenced these. One, um, I want to give a prayer of thanks <coughs> um, and appreciation for those who, in the last 20 years, many of you are, are these people, or I know these people, or family of these people who have served in the last 20 years in Afghanistan, um, and I want to communicate, since I have a mic, uh, appreciation um, for their service and for purchasing these 20 years of relative peace here in the United States. That's good. And, uh, and also, we want to be lift up, lifting up the crisis that's going on in Haiti. We, we actually, numerous, of, numerous people in our church have Compassion National children, for example, who live in Haiti, and their, their situation is unknown. They can't really communicate out. We don't even know if they're all alive. And so, um, we want to be praying for them, uh, for them as well. And then, um, if you can imagine, we also want to pray for um, Michael Gossett today. Those of you who know Michael, Michael is the new lead teaching pastor, the senior pastor at Green Acres Baptist Church. Um, uh, last week was David Dyke's last sermon to preach um, on Sunday morning, and can you imagine being the guy who has to preach next week from this point forward? Um, and so I think he would probably appreciate our prayers. We love Green Acres. They're a great partner church with us as well, and we love uh, doing ministry with them. So we want to lift up uh, Michael in particular um, on, this, on this journey. So pray with me, if you will, for these things. Father, um, we are grateful that you are the kind of God that cares about um, us you care about the human race, and, and the nations rage, um, and they, it does not impact you. you. You are like a lighthouse in the storm. We, you, you, you are affected, but you are not moved. And Lord, I pray that, that in only the ways that you can, I pray for those who are um, in areas of, who are in dangerous areas, uh, missionaries on the ground, um, others who are at risk, and they're in Afghanistan. I pray for your provision. Lord, I, I pray also that people would turn to you and look to you for that, um, even if it includes in death. Father, I pray for uh, a prayer of thankfulness, gratefulness for those who have, uh, as someone who has a 20-year-old child uh, who has gotten to grow up under the protection and relative peace of a, of a world that didn't, did not include um, much in the way of terror attacks here on our soil, and I know that that was being purchased by men and women um, willing to risk everything for our sake. And so um, we're so grateful to them, and we pray you continue to work there. Also in Haiti, Lord, and we lift up our brothers and sisters there who are facing um, the type of trials that they are for the ministries that are seeking to engage. Lord, I pray that you would magnify the dollars that we're sending, magnify the grace of, to the people who we have sent over the years. And Lord, I, I pray that you would um, so, somehow, Lord, your name would be glorified in the tragedy there. And I also want to lift up Michael to you, <coughs> as I know um, uh, he has he is, uh, got to have, I mean, it's a big burden that has been passed to him. And I pray for grace, and I pray for mercy, and I pray that people will have, uh, that flawed humans will have consideration and empathy um, and, and encourage him today. Lord, we lift him up to you, um, knowing that he is your servant. Please continue to expand his role and the role of Green Acres in your kingdom. I pray all these things, Lord, in your son's magnificent name. Amen. All right, so jumping into 1 Peter chapter 3, we're actually laying the groundwork for chapter 3 today. Today is a, 
um, is a summary teaching in advance on marriage. Because the first things we're going to run into in 1 Peter chapter 3 are some teachings that emphasize marriage. So first I want to start by acknowledging singleness. Um, uh, even from the outside, those of you who are single in the room, um, for whatever reason, even from the outside, it's important to notice that marriage has something vital to teach us about the character of God and His relationship to us. We'll get there. You'll learn a lot about that today. <laughs> Plus, some of you are, who are single want to be married someday. And so maybe some of the stuff you could pick up today will help prepare you for that eventuality. Um, but regardless, it's important to recognize that singleness is not somehow God's second best for, for us. It is a, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a disease to be cured. Um, any of that kind of stuff that often it can feel like when you're in the church setting. Um, where the first church I remember that I was involved in a conversation about hiring someone who was single, and, and there was a little bit of pushback to that, which is really common for some reason in churches, like, well, I don't know, you know, single people, they can this, what, what, as, as if married people, like, well, no, we've got it all together. The, um, uh, and I remember at the time saying, or at least thinking, it's been too long, I can't remember, I, I, I feel uncomfortable creating a standard in the church that would disqualify both the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ from serving. Um, that seems like a bad idea um, in my mind. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of people coming on staff and working who are uh, single. I think there's something very powerful about that. And as the Apostle Paul says, um, uh, in fact, the single life for the Christian minister um, is preferable, all other things being equal. Um, also acceptable as a, as a life choice is obviously marriage. And for, to, for the marriage minister, meaning all of us, all Christians are ministers. I don't mean church staff when I say that phrase. All of us are ministers. So the single minister or the married minister, um, for, for however they found themselves in those situations, um, both are appropriate ways for the Christian to live out the disciple's life. The Bible speaks to the life of disciple in real terms. We've already seen that. Chapter, chapters 1 and into chapter 2 was largely this communication. This is who who you are in Christ. This is what Christ has done. This is the new identity that He has purchased for you. That's over and over again through chapters 1 and into chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we get this kind of break. It's kind of odd that, we don't, that, that chapter 2 doesn't represent a new chapter, but keep in mind that the chapters and verses were added in much later. There's no reason to think those are somehow inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, those are just there because humans thought this was a good place to put it. And so, understanding that, that really we started a change halfway through chapter 2, which was this. Given who you are and what Christ has done, what would that look like in various settings? So he goes into the sociocultural of his time and says, for example, let's imagine that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a bondservant. Well, following Jesus as a bondservant would look like this. And then he gives an extreme example. He's not going to give the easy ones. He's going to pick the hard ones. And so he starts with something hard. Imagine what it would be like to be a bondservant. So you're a follower of Jesus Christ who happens to be a bondservant. You're a follower of Jesus Christ who happens to be a master. And then he's going to go into, you're a servant of Jesus Christ. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ who, I don't know, is I don't know, a wife. And then a husband. That's what's going to be unpacking over the next chapter or two as we look at this. Bible, the Bible is a... Is, speaks to the real life, and real life includes marriage for a lot of us. The Bible speaks to the life of the disciple in real terms, and the teaching, especially here in 1 Peter, is going to be practical and direct, because marriage is important and because marriage is difficult. So why is marriage a challenge for you? 
primarily because you're not married to Ginger. That's why. <laughs> if it was, it wouldn't be hard. It's, I'm just telling you. That was good, wasn't it? Uh, I, got, I got booed by Ken Hodge on that one, the first service. He was like, oh, anyway. Um, all right. You may have noticed that I often do seek to make application um, in regards to marriage in sermons. You, you've probably noticed that. Um, all the time I'm doing it. It's because as, as someone wired the way I am, gifted the way that I am, I love application of Scripture. And it struck me years ago as I was just reading the passages that Jesus wrote about being a good neighbor how good our marriages would be if we would just take the passages Jesus teaches about being a good neighbor and apply them to our marriage. How hilarious that, and, and also sad and pathetic and scary, that we will take passages like that and apply them to everyone in the world better than we apply them in our marriage. As if the person who sees the least Christian side of us is the one who we are closest to. Why is that? When I ask again about uh, less malice or resentment or deceit, does your spouse experience that? When we're called to gentleness and kindness and compassion, I ask again. When we, when we learn of some massive paradigm shift, we, we are being the new holy of holies or that humans are treasures creating the image of God, I ask, does your spouse see this? Now, often we'll also ask, do your children see this? Do your neighbors see this? Do your friends see this? Do your, the rest of your family see this? Why is this hard? Because the more intimate a human connection, the more difficult it is for us as humans. It's more difficult to live according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. We're not bad in sprints. We can look like we're living according to the Spirit for a few hours on Sunday morning. But when we have to actually live according to the Spirit in a marathon, it begins to show. We get tired. Our old ruts, our old established habit patterns, our bad behaviors, our addictions, they come back into living focus. And of course, our spouses and our children are the ones who are going to see that. Humans have a difficult time living with intimacy. We have a difficult time with the concept of intimacy. And by the way, I'm not using intimacy as a euphemism here for sex. That would be called sexual intimacy. The, the, the root of the word intimacy, the Latin root, actually means innermost. It creates a picture of the idea of being inside of. That's the image of intimacy is meant to be one person inside of another person. You can see why sex actually is the culmination, is the expression of intimacy for obvious reasons when you talk about one person being inside of. But we're talking about emotional intimacy, affectionate intimacy, the intimacy of presence, mental intimacy, spiritual intimacy. These are all different aspects of intimacy that we learn in an intimate relationship. It's like we're inside of the other person. We, we know what they're thinking. We can experience what they're feeling. What's required for true intimacy is tough for us. It requires a great deal of healthy humility and a great sense of, of divine confidence and those two concepts well integrated, that's what it requires. A great, I'll say it again, a great deal of healthy humility, well integrated into a divine sense of confidence is what's required for intimacy. How many are good at any of those three things? Yeah, me either. It doesn't come naturally to us. Um, intimacy is hard, thus marriage is hard. As a kid, I only knew about one marriage, my parents. It was obviously difficult. My parents definitely had challenges and hardships. Their marriage was difficult at times. It was a hard marriage at times. 
I didn't have access to the inside workings of other marriages, of many other marriages. It seemed like my friends thought their marriages were struggling too, their parents' marriages were struggling too, but it's not like boys sit around and talk about their parents' marriages very often, right? And so that wasn't something that I had a strong, a strong sense of. Is this just, is, you don't have a lot of marriages. Think about how strange it is, by the way, that as a child, you don't have a lot of other marriages to compare to but your parents. And that just seems like that's just kind of the way that it is. But as I started doing a lot of marriage counseling, the, the picture got broader. And I noticed that it seemed like marriage itself carries with it certain difficulties. I often will use this analogy. People think when they're in pre-marriage, they're before they get married, that getting married is going to be kind of like two people climbing into a canoe and drifting downstream in marital bliss, right? Those are chuckling are the married people. It's, it's really, as we talked about it, marriage is much more like two people trying to bring their canoes together while key, and keeping them together while paddling upstream. All the energy and force, we should know this about our fallen world, the natural state of marriage is divorce. That's its natural state. If you leave it alone, it dies, just like everything else in this fallen world. If you leave it alone, it dies. If you don't feed it or nourish it or tend it. If you inherited a garden from a family member who had been tending it for 20 years, and you decided just to leave it alone, and you don't need to tend it, you're just going to enjoy the fruit and vegetables and flowers and all that kind of stuff out of it. How long do you get to do that? A year? Maybe two? You get some? What's the natural state of a garden? Death and weeds, right? My grandmother used to say the way you tell a, a, a weed from other plants is you tear them all out and the weeds will come back. That's how you know what <laughs> difference between a weed and a, and a garden and a good one. So, Think about, the, think about the natural, so that's a natural state. By the way, and then, as Ginger talks about, and then on top of that, now you're trying to, to learn how to be intimate, which means now, while paddling upstream in two canoes, you're constantly trying to get into each other's canoe. Like, you really want to be in just one canoe together. That would require a sense of confidence, humility, that would be really difficult to finally climb into, letting your canoe drift away while climbing into the other. It's, it's, it's a tough analogy. So I began to wonder about that. Why? Why is marriage hard? By the way, stop and think for a second about marriages you respect. Think about marriages that you would like your marriage to be like. Isn't it funny that we focus so much on compatibility? And the, the world focuses on compatibility. Is that what triggers the marriages that you have the most respect for? Is how compatible they are? How easy their marriage is? Is that what you think of? Is, is well, they just never face any hardships? They never face any challenges? They're just incredibly well-gelled. Maybe they got a really easy start. They had no family challenges, no in-law differences. Did y'all love, by the way, when we were talking, I don't remember who it was, I think it was Nathan Cash, was talking about the life group, for the, the, the newly married life group, and he's like, he literally lists three things. In-laws, that was number one. We're going to talk about issues pre couples face, like in-laws and communication and family, like, or in-laws. Like that's a, isn't it funny how that's, no one, no one brought that challenge to your marriage, the, the in-laws issue. You got an easy start, no family differences, background traumas, none of those, no personality differences. I bet that's not what defines the marriages you respect the most. You can be thinking about that. So I really wanted to understand why, as a, as a counselor early on, why God, who conceived of, researched, defined, designed, invented, created, and mass-produced marriage would allow it to be so hard sometimes. It's, it isn't, it's not hard to understand why God would make there be 
wonderful times in marriage. There would be times of bliss and, and close friendship and compatibility and, and the wonderful, amazing, adventurous things that can happen in marriage as well. That's not strange. Well, if, of course, a God who is a loving God who loves to give good gifts is going to put that in marriage. The question is, why would he have developed it in such a way that it can be so hard? We'll come back to that. My second question as a counselor early on was, why does cohabitation fail? Now, this is kind of specific, so let me explain this. Early on in counseling, um, I had numerous people who came to see me who were married and numerous who came to see me who were cohabitating, meaning they were living together but not married. And, and I would ask every single time, I would ask the couple who were living together but not married, um, <laughs> what, how do you want me to treat you? Do you want me to engage with our, is our counseling going to be pre-marriage counseling? Is it going to be dating counseling? Or is it going to be marriage counseling? 100% of them said marriage counseling. Okay? So I would always ask the natural question, well then why aren't you married? And I would get various answers. I'll come back to that in a minute, which I think gave me some insight later on. But at first I would ask it, well why aren't you married? Here's what I discovered. Now, I will tell you, the way my brain works is after the first few sessions, I couldn't have told you which couples were married and which ones were cohabitating because that's not, an, and since I'm treating them all as married, that's not an important piece of information. And I have too much Star Wars trivia up here to keep everything else about you people in place. And so, and so I've got to, you know, I, I just like, that's just a piece of information I don't need to have because it's the same counseling no matter what. And I honestly couldn't have told you. But after five years, I went back and looked, and in five years, I had lost zero marriages as a therapist. I got broken, that's been broken many times since then. But, but first two years, zero, I lost zero. I did a single, not a single couple who came to see me for marriage counseling was divorced in the first five years of my counseling. In the same five years, I did not save a single cohabitating couple. Every single couple that was cohabitating broke up during those five years. Every single one. Now, remember, I couldn't have even told you which was which. It's not like I was working to break them up. I was doing the exact same counseling with both populations, and yet the same type of counseling that apparently was super healthy for married couples. And by the way, when I say married, I mean, in at least one case, they came in two cars. Her car was packed with everything she owned. This was, this was she was leaving. They stopped in for counseling. They made it. At least five years later, they had but not a single one of the cohabitating couples. What is it about cohabitation that the same healthy marriage work is actually devastating for those relationships while it is life-giving to these? Why is it that cohabitation fails? And for years, it was, it was, the, statistic was, was, the statistics were shocking. Still, so I went to look up more modern statistics because many people said, well, it'll change once cohabitation becomes normative, once it's just something that most people do. And by the way, we're at a place now where many, if not most people, live together either before marriage or they live together and they just never get married. Um, and so now, by now, the, the stigma is largely gone. So what's the situation? According to uh, a 2018 recent study in the Journal of Marriage and Family, there is still a strong, significant link between divorce and cohabitation. People who cohabitate first and then get married are more likely to get divorced, significantly more likely to get divorced than people who just get married. Why is that? You would, you would think, especially married people who have not experienced that, would go, man, those first few years of marriage, wouldn't it have been nice to not be surprised by so much? You're like, man, you get married and you're like, wow, I wish I'd known about that, right? That would have, that, I might have made a different decision if I'd known about that. Whatever that happens to be, that's a 
That would seem to be the case. So then why is it that people who get this start out like that, it doesn't increase their odds of making it? In fact, it significantly decreases their odds of making it if they get married. No one knows for sure. I have some guesses. One is why. Why do people cohabitate? So according to a Pew Research study in 2019, here's, here's the four top answers for why people cohabitate. Um, with, there's one exception. That these are three of the top four. Now, these add up to more than 100 because these are, people could give more than one reason. 40% said money. They said financial reasons is why they're cohabitating. Another, another 40% said it's more convenient. 25% said they were testing their relationship. Now, I don't know how much overlap that is. I don't know if that adds up to 60% to 80 or 80% of the whole or whatever. Incidentally, only 70% of people cohabitating said they were cohabitating out of love, which means 30% aren't. Um, And also, that that's not even part of the decision-making. And if you ask them to define love, my guess is it's rarely actually love. 90% of married people say they got married for love. But notice all of those answers are about either comfort or fear. They, fun- they fundamentally come down to making me feel better. See, the most common answer I used to get when I would ask you about cohabitating that they would give would be some version of the car answer. You know the car answer? Why are y'all living together rather than being married? Well, you wouldn't, and you wouldn't buy a car without test driving it, right? Or, or even, maybe worse, you wouldn't buy a pair of shoes without trying them on, right? Cohabitating has that message implied in it. I want to, get, I want to, I want to be free to get out of this if I need to later. That's really, people aren't afraid of marriage, they're afraid of divorce. They don't get married because they're afraid of divorce, not because they're afraid of marriage. They're married, they just don't have the word, right? You have people, I've had people in counseling say, I've been married three times, I'm never doing that again. I mean, they're living with somebody, they're sleeping with that person, they're sharing all of their bills and everything, they're raising and having children together, but we're never going to be married. I mean, okay. So it's the word you're afraid of then, apparently, because you're doing all married, you're just not using that word. No, what they're afraid of is not being able to walk away later without a divorce because divorces are hard and painful. That's what they're afraid of is divorce. It's easier. It's safer. What if it fails? So why is that? Well, I think an insight came to me later when I thought about the fact that if, you buy, if you're going to buy a car, you test drive that car before you buy it. But what do you do with that car when it no longer functions the way you want it to? You trade it in, typically for a younger model right? What do you do with that pair of shoes when it no longer functions the way you want it to, when its performance isn't what you want? You toss it, you buy a new pair, right? That is that fundamental concept, quote, easier to get out of that mindset. Well, what if I don't like it? What if the performance fails? Then I need to replace it with a better performer. That actually is, by definition, the absolute wrong foundation for marriage. And so you are, by cohabitating in advance, you are declaring in advance, I am not marriageable. And I don't consider you marriageable. And so in three years after we tried it out, then we're marriageable? Not likely. That's not the problem. So what I realized was marriage is hard. Didn't understand why. Cohabitation doesn't work. I didn't understand why. So I decided to, I finally decided I need to go to the person who designed it. And I went to Genesis 2 to start. So let's hear it. <coughs> Genesis 2, 18. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. A couple of quick comments that I want to make. One, notice that it was the Lord God who noticed Adam needed someone help, not Adam. Adam didn't realize that he was not okay. God realized that Adam wasn't okay. 
Two, notice that God didn't just say, I need to schedule more time with Adam. God didn't say, listen, we're walking in the cool of the morning. It's time for us to start working in the cool of the afternoon also, or vice versa, right? Let's double up the amount of time we spend together. No, instead, God's going to not give him more God. He's going to give him God's provision. In the evangelical world, sometimes we get overcarried away with the idea that all we need is God. Okay, at some level, obviously, that's true, but God doesn't think that's all we need. God thinks we also need one another, and then we see that in this passage. Finally, the word helper can sound kind of patronizing, doesn't it, ladies? Like, hey, Adam's not good. We need to get the boy a servant, right? Isn't that how that kind of sounds? You just need to know that in the Hebrew, the word there, helper, is also used for God several times in the Old Testament. It's not a demeaning word. If anything, it's demeaning to the other party, right? Listen, the boy needs help, is, is apparently what, what God was saying. And so God is, God is essentially hiring someone to work for God to help the boy, okay? That's kind of what's going on here. Now, back to it. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. This is not a naming exercise. You're about to see what this actually exists for. The, name, the, the man gave names to all the livestock to, and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. This was actually, I think, mainly God trying to show Adam that Adam needed help. He showed Adam all the different animals and all the different creatures and all the different human-like beings and said, I need these, and Adam is now catching on. Wait a minute, none of these are fit for me. None of these are a good partner for me. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed it up with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man got poetic for the first time in human history. It's not what it actually says, but there you go. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." So I don't know how you interpret Genesis, especially the first, say, 11 chapters. There's a lot of good work that's been done on that in the last few years, which I really appreciate. But no matter how you come at it, whether you think it's history or mytho-history or analogy or allegory or whatever it is, you, you, the one thing you cannot teach it or understand it to be is just myth. This, this, doesn't, this isn't a mythological story meant to explain. There, there was one when I was a forest ranger one year. Um, that I would tell that was a Native American one that explained why storks have long legs and rabbits have long ears and why there's a rabbit in the moon and why there's fire in wood. And that whole story was, it was, it was a myth created just as a, as a, to explain those, those four natural things. The book, of, the book of Genesis, even the first 11 chapters, isn't just a story on why snakes slither. It's not a story on why men have one less rib than women. By the way, how many of you, until just now, when I'm about to tell you otherwise, think that men have one less rib than women? We, we, we don't. No one, that's not a thing. Um, men have the same number of ribs as women, um, which, of course, makes sense. This is not a genetic change. Uh, sorry, I'm not, I don't want to get sidetracked by that. So, you get, but either way, however you interpret it, you cannot miss out on the lessons here. Even if you do think this is some kind of language isn't to be taken literally, that just means you have to spot the eternal truth even more vibrantly and vitally. One of them is we were designed and created intentionally, and so was marriage. Marriage was the, a solution that God hardwired into the earth that He wanted something to experience, to accomplish what? Well, I kept reading. 
I got into the prophets, and I find these sections on marriage. Marriage turns up a lot in the prophets. There's some laws about marriage. You can read through those. I didn't get as much insight from those. But when I started getting to the prophets, things began to shine out to me. Isaiah 54, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 62. Let me read a couple of those verses. Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be called desolate. Instead, you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land will be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. All through Ezekiel, there are passages about God's relationship to His people, Israel, as though married. Hosea, the entire, the main story of Hosea is about marriage being a parable, a picture of God's relationship to His people. We see it again in Jeremiah over and over again, especially a faithless bride. But in 31, uh, 31 and 32, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the one they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The relationship between Jesus Christ and the church is even more evident, less subtle in the New Testament. Passages like 2 Corinthians 11.2, I wish you would bear with me a little, with a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Again, the language is all through there. John in particular loves it. He's got it all through the book of Revelation, all through the book of John. If you go back and watch and, watch and listen to the teaching on John 14, which we did a couple of years ago, you'll get a lot of detail about this. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This is, he, this is Jewish betrothal language. This is about a husband and a wife, a bride and a groom. In, this, in all through, the church is the bride all through the book of Revelation. In fact, the main event of the afterlife is called the wedding feast of the Lamb, where Jesus Christ is brought, where Jesus' church is brought to him. It is very, very clear, as I will show you again in one more passage that I left out there on, ten, on purpose, that when God created marriage, he was intentionally, listen to this, he was intentionally creating a living parable for his love for his people. What he wanted was something that everyone saw every day in their own lives, in the lives of their friends, and the lives of their family, that over and over again on a constant basis would be a reminder again and again and again of God's relationship to his people, of God's love for his people, that that would be its purpose. That's why I believe God created marriage the way that he did, is to be a living parable of his love for his people. Now, if that's the case, I want you to ask yourself, what concept best describes God's love for His people? What makes Yahweh so different from all the other gods of the world, all the other ones introduced to us by religions, by pagan religions, established religions, all of them? What makes Him so different from all of them? One word, sacrifice. Stop and think for a second that there is a God who sacrifices. How does that make any sense? From the human perspective, it makes none. That's why all the man-made religions, their gods, seek for us to sacrifice only. 
He loves us because we first love Him in every other religion. In Christianity, we love Him because He first loved us. We sacrifice for Him because He first sacrificed for us. Okay, are you putting the pieces together? God spent all this time and energy, all His mindset, creating a living parable of His love for His people. And His love for His people is defined among many things, by sacrifice, then what is the one thing God is going to have to hardwire into marriage? Sacrifice. And sacrifice, by definition, is hard. If it isn't, it's not sacrifice. Right? If it's an easy thing to sacrifice, it's not impressive. Me getting my wife to do something with me that I like doing is not a sacrifice for me. Right? I can't call that sacrifice. That's what I like. He sacrificed for us. 1 Peter 2.24, which we just read recently, says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. What kind of a God does that? What kind of a God is this? Who is this guy? By definition, sacrifice takes work. We have to push against our preferences, our personal desires, what we falsely often call needs. Well, and sometimes what we rightly call needs. It may cost us those too. Marriage was created in the garden. You may say this, but marriage was created in the garden, Chris. Remember when things were perfect, blissful, when there, when there was no hard work, when there was no difficulty, when there was no challenges, when there was no labor. Work is a result of the fall, right? You'd be amazed how many Christians think that. Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Not only was work part of the garden, man was put in the garden for the express purpose of working it. Now, I don't know the consequences of the garden unworked in the garden of Eden. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you with that. If, if, if Adam had said, like, nah, I'm not going to, would things have died or failed or would weeds have grown? I don't know. That's a theological conversation for another day. But we know it required work. Earlier it even says God had not yet, pre, had not yet created working plant, plants like that. Shrubs is what it's called in the Hebrew. Shrubs, because he had not yet created a man to work them. It's the, it is the nature of certain plants to need to be worked. God wants a living parable of His love for His people. He created a real-life metaphor for how He loves us. This is the purpose of marriage, and it is the standard of success for marriage. To the degree that our marriages exemplify God's love for His people, it is a good one. To the degree it fails to exemplify God's love for His people, it's a bad marriage. Good marriages do this. You don't believe me? I want you to listen to what, Paul, what the Apostle Paul said. This is the passage I skipped um, that all the Bible teachers were like, I can't believe he didn't use this example. I want you to listen for the deeply hidden and subtle connections between God and the church and marriage in this passage. And by subtle, I mean highlighted and underlined and bold printed. Paul's just kind of a hard time even distinguishing them. Listen to this. Wives, submit. Talk more about that next week. Wives, submit to your, hus to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself a Savior. I assume you haven't lost it yet. You, you seen the connection yet? Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Again, subtle, right? However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You want to have an exercise in futility? Break that passage apart into which things are talking about marriage and which things are talking about Christ and the church. Good luck. It's impossible to tell them apart. Paul can't tell them apart, and he's the one writing them. You know why? Because to talk about marriage is to talk about Christ and the church. Every single time you talk about marriage, you're talking about God's relationship to his people. And the, the key way we see that in this era is Christ and the church. It's another reason I love to guide us to direct application when it comes to Scripture and our marriage is the power of the testimony it creates. The analogy Paul creates, husband, Christ, head, and wife, church, body. It is a powerful analogy, this analogy that he creates. How the husband relates to the wife, and how Christ relates to the church, and how the head relates to the body, and how important those are, and he unpacks those. And the way those play out is really powerful, especially for those who see it the most closely, like our children I'm a firm believer that we lose children when they go off to college primarily because their ma parents' marriage stinks. It's not because of sex, drugs, rock and roll. It's not liberal professors. It's not whatever. It is because their parents' marriage is terrible. And the kids see it. So ask yourself how that works. Look at the parable, right? If, if It works in both directions. If I exemplify, if my children see me love my wife and the best I can is Christ loves the church, then they go, that's That's real. That's a testimony I can see. If, God, if Jesus Christ loves me the way my dad loves my mom, well, he's worth following. Is the church for real? I think the main reason college students go away to college and they, or, or start their work after school and they don't go to church the very next Sunday is because they know church is a joke because they've seen how their mom relates to their dad. So they know it's a joke. I've seen my mom not respect my dad, not love my dad, not pursue what he wants, but fight him tooth and nail with everything. And apparently that's a parable for how Christ loves the church. So why would I be a part of that? We create this. We should be doing our, to quote Jesus, we should be doing our good deeds in front of others so that they may see it and glorify God. That improves our children. They want, our children want God to give them what he gave you unless it's something that they don't want at all. So I encourage you to show this to your kids. Sit by your spouse in church. Believe me, I totally understand the need for some of us to have to kind of corral our children between us. I get it, absolutely, right there with you. But whenever possible, when we can show that we choose them, even sometimes at the expense of our children, that our children know, listen, you're important to me, but mom, dad, they're very important to me. You need to, you need to, they need to experience that. Be appropriately affectionate with them. Speak kindly, gently, positively with our spouses. 
communicate nearly constant appreciation. You will not overappreciate your spouse, I promise. They're never going to go, really, enough with the appreciation, right? It's not going to happen. These are basic passages in Scripture that we're told to do with everybody. Lift them up. Get them gifts and tokens of love. Now, this isn't for everybody. This is, this is sacred. This is Genesis 2.25. Seduce them. Romance them. Pursue them in order to honor the analogy that God has created to convince our children and our friends and our families and our churches of the truth that they are treasure and you know it because I treat your mom and your dad like their treasure. And you give that testimony. There is a God and He sent His Son to come and live and suffer and die for His church and His church loves and adores and appreciates and serves and submits to Him with all that we have. This stuff is real. It is more real than our marriages. Our marriages are the copy. The real thing is God's relationship to His people, and we're just trying to model that. But there's a problem with the plan. Right? Some of you have already spotted it. If I do my job and Ginger does her job, the whole marriage thing works out pretty well. If I'm dedicated to sacrificing my preferences for hers, my desires for hers, if necessary, my needs for hers, and she is willing and eager to do the same for me, well, it's kind of Christmas morning all the time, isn't it? It's pretty awesome. When we do it God's way, it works out beautifully. But the problem is, I can only choose whether I do it. I can't choose whether my spouse does it. I can't choose whether, whether Ginger does her job, and she can't choose whether I do mine. This parable requires two people. How can one person be responsible for it requires two people? To a large degree, you can't. Sorry. It only takes one person to end a marriage, but it takes two to make it all that it was meant to be. Now you know why the next passage in 1 Peter, or that section in Ephesians, doesn't begin marriages, comma. Because a marriage is not something you can speak to. It doesn't exist. A marriage is the word we give for two people making this covenant. But I can't schedule a meeting with a marriage. The next two weeks, Peter will begin instead to say things like this. Likewise, wives. Likewise, husbands. Husbands, next week we're going to be talking to wives. If you need to skip next week, you have my permission. If you're going to come next week so that you can elbow your spouse, I would strongly encourage you not to come. Wives, the week after that, Craig Langemer is going to be teaching to husbands. If you, can, if you can't come without trying to create application for him, feel free to skip. Maybe easier on everybody. So let me simplify Paul's analogy. To the measure of a husband is how well he exemplifies God's love for his wife. The measure of a wife is how well she exemplifies God's love to her husband. Verse 17, each of us individually is judged. 117 says this, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. You can instruct a wife. You can instruct a husband. I will answer to God first as an individual, perhaps also as a marriage, a family, a nation at some point, but I will answer to him for how well I represented him in my marriage. I will not answer to him for how well my wife did. John Merrick, um, who's one of the counselors who works at Aletheia, um, uh, John Mark, he's, he's, he and I were having breakfast Friday morning. 
And, uh, and he just made this simple little statement that has stuck with me. It's going to stick with me probably from now on when he referenced being a parent. And, and if you're a good parent, a good parent starts a conversation, like they start being a parent with this. I'm going to love this child with everything I have. I'm going to give him all that I have. I'm going to give him every bit of love that I can possibly work up. That's stage one of a good parent. And stage two of a good parent begins with, and I realize that all of that is insufficient. I realize that everything that I have to give isn't enough. It's a huge breach. Marriage is exactly the same way. If you're a good spouse, you start by saying, man, I'm going to give everything I have. I'm going to love with everything I've got. And there's going to come a point when you realize it's not sufficient. Your spouse needs something better than you, bigger than you, grander than you. And you're, the second stage is when you're pointing your children or your spouse to God. You learn to be, to be satisfied with Christ and then let your marriage be an overflow of His relationship with you to be truly a living parable. As is typical of God, God has created a system that requires diligent and miraculous obedience to Him. When practiced, it yields exactly the fruit that we long for, intimacy, and exactly the way we want it, free and graceful. A friendship as all the best gifts that we are able to give one another. As I love Ginger in the way that she loves, that, that she loves to be loved best, and she loves me in the ways that I love to be loved best out of obligation to Him. Not me, not her, Him. What will it be? That will be marriage His way. Most of us are insistent on trying to do marriage our way. I'd love to encourage you, if that's the case, for you to repent of that decision. It turns out we're terrible masters. And instead to place ourselves under Him. I've gone really long, which is not surprising on this topic. Stand if you will. I want to pray for all of us in this. I want our marriages to be a testimony. I'm convinced that if, if our marriages were awesome, if our marriages rocked in the church and people saw that, we probably couldn't build buildings fast enough to provide for the people who would be streaming in. That's something, so many people out there in the world don't even know they need Jesus, but they know they need a different marriage than the one they have. And if we had good marriages and that showed... I think the testimony that would come from that would be exactly what the Apostle Paul said it would be 2,000 years ago. My guess is their marriages were just as bad then. But with Christ as our focus and we can serve Him by serving one another, it's a whole different ballgame. Father, we thank You and we praise You for the good gifts that You've given us, including marriage. God, I pray for the marriages of South Spring and of our community and in the churches around here, Lord. I pray that the marriages of those of us who are seeking to follow you would be like a light in a dark space. God, I pray the marriages that we have here would be like a city on a hill, an example of what your church is meant to be. Lord, I, I pray for all of us who are here that our lives would exemplify the life devoted to you whether we're single or married, God, I pray that our lives would look like that. A living, that our lives would be lived out as a parable of your love for your people and that our marriages would look like that. God, I just pray for this inspiration. Only you can accomplish this thing in us. And I pray that you would do so in amazing ways and we'll give you the glory for it. In your son's name, amen. If you've already um, been through our welcome home process and you'd like to join this morning, you are welcome to do that. If you need to come up here and pray, um, uh, and for anything at all, we'd love to do that. This kind of sermon, probably most of the application happens when you leave here. 
um, as is almost always the case, you may need to start by repenting of something in your life. That's my prayer for us. Listen to what the Spirit has for you. Guys. Nice.